Well, good morning, Arbor. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Jake. And before we jump into the message this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk a little bit about what's been in the news when it comes to the reopening of church buildings and this building specifically. Uh, I just want to say, like you, I cannot wait to be back together. I, I can't wait to see your faces. I can't wait to talk with you. Um, I, I can't wait for that day. Um, but as you can tell, the landscape has been changing minute by minute, announcement by announcement. And in fact, we did a survey uh, just a couple weeks ago, and what we found on this topic was that our church, um, there's division. Just like there is within the government, there's division within our church. We have some people who are ready to jump right in and let's start church right now. And we have others who are saying, not yet, we need to wait for a cure. And so it puts us in a difficult position. But here's what I want to say. We are reopening. The question is timing, and we are working on that timing. And the biggest concern that we have as a church is safety, how to best care for our congregation, and not only our congregation and our people, but how to best care for our community at large. And, and I'm even thinking, um, how do we care for our staff? Because I'll tell you this, our staff have been working and working and working, and it is taking a toll. As methods of ministry have changed, our staff has adapted, and they are exhausted. And so trying to weigh that as well. And so what I want to do is I want to ask this. It is simply that I want to ask for two things. One, patience. Would you please be patient with us as we process through this? And then number two, I, I, I ask that you would pray for unity. Here's what Paul says. Paul he writes this in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's his appeal. He says, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. That's my desire, is that we would be a unified church because we are a family. And families, when things get tough, we don't run away, we stick together. And that's the purpose, it's been the purpose of this church, making disciples together. It's our preference. And so here's what's happening is we are putting together a plan. And we're doing this through a select panel of experts in the medical industry, in the education industry, in that field. What we're doing is we're putting together a plan. And on June 14th, we are going to have a family Zoom meeting, and at that point, we will roll out not only when we will be reopening, but how we will be doing that as well. And so I just ask for your prayers. In the meantime, as for right now, as we are talking about reopening, we are starting a new series that is called Begin Again. And here's the idea. Every day comes with curves. Every day comes with adjustments and it has its own share of hard. But every once in a while, a day comes, a hard day comes that turns into the worst day. And when that day happens, when that day suddenly flips our world upside down and it falls apart, when our life that we knew is suddenly not there or the way that it was before, it's difficult to find our way into tomorrow. And if you've ever experienced something like that where the, where the floor drops out, it simply means that you are human. It doesn't mean that God has forgotten about you or that he doesn't care or that he is abandoning you or punishing you. All those are lies. 
too many lies that we often choose to believe. And so today in this new series, here's the whole point, is that when we get to the end of our hope, God provides a path for us to begin again. At the end of our hope, God paves a path to begin again. Here's what he says in his word. He says, behold, I am about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. This was said by the same prophet who taught us that God gives us beauty from ashes. It is a phoenix rising, a reset, a rebirth, a fresh start, a do-over. When we get to the end of our hope, when devastation hits and that's it and we are done, God provides a path for us to begin again. And that has been true and it is true all over the place. One example is this, is Mount St. Helens. Two weeks ago, we celebrated the 40th anniversary of the eruption. Now, I was four years old when that happened. Some of you remember it quite well. I do not remember it that well, but I actually have this crazy, foggy memory of my mom being really upset because our aunt and uncle were closer to the blast and we were worried about their safety. And on May 18th, at 8.32 a.m., Mount St. Helens awoke with a 5.2 earthquake. And the devastation was catastrophic. The 300 mile an hour blast instantly wiped out everything within eight miles. The shockwave leveled century old trees for another 19 miles and it, it threw the trees like pickup sticks eerily on the ground in the same direction. The ash went 15 miles into the air, darkening the sky, and eventually it ended up drifting 2,200 square miles, um, eventually settling over seven states. Wildlife, birds, fish, and unfortunately 57 people lost their lives as a result. There wasn't a speck of grass, moss, vegetation of any kind that could be seen. Everything that was in range was gone, destroyed. And in a moment, just a quick moment, life was choked out. Now, what shocked everyone was this, is that there were signs of life, returning life within a year. Nobody expected that. If you saw the blast, if you saw the result, you would think no life could exist here for a long time, if ever again. And the devastation that, that took it out emerged with a new ecosystem. The forest came back and it came back richer and even more diverse and different than before. Such a recovery seemed unfathomable to anyone who witnessed the destruction back in May of 1980. But yet, God programmed nature to begin again. Inside the earth, inside the seed, underneath the devastation, life rises again. Another example, five years ago, February 1st, 2015, and I really hate to bring this up, and some of you know what that date is. It is when our potential dynasty didn't explode, it imploded with an interception on the one-yard line. 
I have no idea where I was when uh, Mount St. Helens erupted, but I remember exactly where I was when I was standing, and I, I, I was so excited, standing by the mantle, ready for the next touchdown and our dynasty to begin, only to be filled with horror as Butler took that interception. And, and my heart sank, and people around my house started to drink, and then all of a sudden, and we're all thinking to ourselves, what the heck just happened? Every Seahawks fan was white. Why didn't we hand it to Lynch? And their world fell apart in that moment. The devastation is catastrophic. Even Pete Carroll recently, last month, did an interview and he said this. He said, some will never get over the loss to the Patriots. And to that, Pete, I say you are exactly right. But what did Pete do? Number one, I think it was amazing is Pete took ownership for the whole entire thing. But secondly, Pete cleaned house. When there was division on the team as a result, he said, goodbye, Michael Bennett. Goodbye, Earl Thomas. We'll see you later. Uh, Richard Sherman, enjoy San Francisco, if you will. And he cleaned house. What he did is he got rid of the division and he began again. And this year, we're coming up, we have another opportunity for hope. Hope rises from the ashes, we begin again, hopefully, that is if we have an NFL season this year, fingers crossed. But today, on a much larger scale, our world is suffering. A tiny virus erupted onto the scene and shockingly, it interrupted or intercepted the life as we knew it, our lives as we knew it. And the reality is our world probably won't go back to normal anytime soon. It really won't. It's kind of changed forever, for better or for worse. The past three months have flipped the landscape. And there are those who really feel like, hey, we're starting from scratch. And in some ways we are. We're starting from scratch as a community, as a country. And even as a global society, we are beginning again. And so now please hear me. And this, I think this is important. There's no need to fear in the midst of this. There's been so much fear and so much pain, but there's no need to fear. And the reason we don't have to fear is because God has got this. God has got you in the midst of this. God has done this kind of stuff before. He has experience in these sort of things. Jesus said in both Isaiah and in Revelation, he said, behold, I am making all things new. And friends, he has been doing this for centuries. And so as I was thinking through scripture and the message today and kind of looking, looking at um, the Bible and what type of new beginnings, because there are a lot of them inside there, what are the new beginnings in the Bible? And there was one that popped out head and shoulders above the rest when it comes to um, the biggest restart in history. Outside of the resurrection, the biggest restart in human history has to be the story of Noah, Noah's Ark. And friends, there are so many parallels when it comes to this story and our current pandemic. Uh, so many similarities. For example, Noah experienced, and a phrase we've heard over and over again, unprecedented circumstances. The world changed that he was living in. People think, they think that Noah spent 40 days and 40 nights on the ark, and that actually is not true. Uh, it rained for 40 days and for 40 nights. 
And it wasn't until 10 months later, 10 months on the boat, that waters started to recede. 370 days total, they finally stepped off of the boat onto dry land, a little over a year. And so Noah was stuck on a boat, a houseboat, with his immediate family, probably homeschooling, taking care of a whole lot of pets, and I am pretty much guarantee you that they ran out of toilet paper at one point in time. And when it was over, when they stepped out of the boat, their world had changed, and Noah and his family and every animal in the ark had to begin again and find a new way in which to live. And I realize, friends, that this is a hugely familiar story, and just about everybody who's listening has heard this at some point in time. And yet, (laughs) I don't think I have ever heard this taught on past Sunday school. Yes, I have have seen it painted on church nurseries, and I've I've seen flannel graph depictions. But as an adult, I don't believe I've ever heard someone teach on the topic. In fact, this is my very first time as well. And if I had to guess to why we don't teach on it and that it's rarely taught, I thought maybe it's simply because we've pushed it back and we just think, oh, that's a kid's story. That's a bedtime story. That's a fable. It's almost too big, too impossible to be true. It's folklore. It's not fact, right? Because how do we know? How do we know that there was a worldwide flood? It seems a little big, a little crazy, a little impossible. And you would think that if there was a worldwide flood, then at some point in time, there would be evidence of that, right? Well, here's what we know. There are a lot of theories, and they're kind of fun, actually, to geek out over. For example, I don't know if you know this, but there, the fact is almost every ancient culture has some version of a worldwide flood story in their history. My favorite theory is the theory of the water vapor canopy where there was a water vapor canopy over the entire earth, which kind of acted like a giant greenhouse, creating a global tropical environment. And its collapse was the actual flood. And the shifting of the continents didn't happen through time, but they happened through force, completely altering our atmosphere changing the oxygen level, the dense oxygen level in the air that drastically reduced human life expectancy that which completely coincides with biblical uh, accounts. The flood is why we have frozen palm trees in both the North Pole and the South Pole. In fact, the fossil records, this is crazy, it shows that sea creatures, it shows fossils of sea creatures in in places above sea level on every continent of the earth. In fact, they are found even in the Himalayas, the highest mountain range in the world. All of these are indications and point to a worldwide flood. And even if that wasn't enough, scientists believe that they have found the remains of the ark on Mount Ararat in modern day Turkey, which is exactly where the Bible said the ark came to rest. Now, Please hear me, and, and I gotta be clear on this. These are theories, they're, they're theories, and yes, they are fun, and, and they, they capture our imagination. But the evidence that solidifies the Noah account for me, in addition to the fact that it's found in God's perfect word, is this, it's Jesus. Jesus himself taught about the flood story in Matthew 24. 
Jesus considered the Noah account to be actual, factual event. And friends, if it's good enough for Jesus to teach from, it's good enough for me. And so let us do this. Let us refamiliarize ourselves with this familiar story. It takes place early on after creation. It starts with rebellion. It says this, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. And so what did this do? This broke God's heart. The Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. But there was one person, one shining light on the planet. It was Noah. And it says this about Noah. It says he was righteous right here. Noah was a righteous man. The only blameless person living on earth at the time. And he walked in close relationship with God. Noah walked with God. But what I find interesting is the context in which he walked with God. Noah walked with God when nobody else was walking with God. Noah was the exception to the rule, right? He was out of step. Noah was out of step with culture because culture was out of, out of step with God. They weren't on the same page. In verse 5, it tells us that the whole world was living in rebellion. And so... Noah is the odd man out. Noah is the one who's not conforming to what's going on around him. And when you do that, when you live in a world like that, it comes with pressure. It comes with pressure. Some of you work in pressured environments. And by that, I mean you're working from home right now. The environment has changed around our culture. And I don't just mean working at home. I mean this. I mean when I was a kid, it was... To, to be a Christian, to follow Christ, to, you know, to be a pastor, that wasn't just an accepted thing. That was a, a respected thing. But that was a pre-Christian um, era. This is a post-Christian day that we live in. And right now, it is not popular to be a Christian. It's not a good thing. In fact, uh, people would say you're a little bit strange. And when, you're, when you follow Christ, you are the odd person out. And you feel that pressure and you feel the weight of being different. And the more serious you are in your walk with Christ, the more odd you become. Noah was odd because Noah was righteous. And catch this, Noah walked so closely with God that he was the only person that God was talking to. And so God told him his plans. He said, hey, look, I'm going to flood the earth. You know, we're going to begin again. That's what's going to happen. And so God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures for they have filled the earth with violence. Look, I am about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. And then verse 14 says this. It says, so make yourself an ark of gopher wood. God said, I am going to destroy the world and I'm going to want you, Noah, to build a boat. Let me explain something to you. This is important. Hebrews 11.7 says that Noah did all of this by faith. It said that he built an ark without seeing anything ahead of time. He's never seen a flood. 
He hasn't seen a flash flood. He hasn't even seen rain because up to that point in history, it says that the waters came from underneath. And so God is warning him about something that he has never seen. And he is asking him to do something that he or nobody else has ever done to build a boat that big. And friends, faith is the same thing. When we're stepping out in obedience with without full understanding, without full comprehension, without all the information, all the details. That's what faith is. And that's what God asks us to do on a daily basis. He says, I got you. I don't know. You don't know all the details, but I got you. Go left, do this, go right, do that. And sometimes it doesn't make sense. Even to us, it clearly doesn't make sense to the culture. Let me tell you how big the boat was, because I think this is interesting. The, the chapter actually gives the measurements. So in our terms, the ark was one and a half football fields in length. That's how big it was. It was four stories tall. Four stories, which is nuts. That's like twice as big as the building I'm teaching in right now. And it took Noah 120 years to build. 120 years. Some of you are saying, hey, I've been waiting on God a long time. And it still hasn't rained, right? Yeah, I've, I've been waiting for him to answer me. I'm, it's been four months and I haven't heard a thing. 120 years Noah spent obeying God without seeing anything. And I don't know about this because it's not in scripture, but I have to assume that there were days when he's out chopping down gopher wood and putting it together that he wondered what in the heck am I doing? That he had questions and maybe he even had doubts. But in Hebrews, it says that he was faithful for 120 years. 120 years. And then it happened. Blip, drop, loop. He's probably wondering what the heck that is coming from the sky. And then it clicks with him. Ah, that's what's going to happen. And so he goes to his family and he says, it is time. And they get in the boat. And all of a sudden, Papa Lion says to Mama Lion, Rawr, it's time to go. And they get in the boat. And the animals came on their own. That blows my mind. The animals came on their own. Two by two, they came into the boat re um, representing every living thing that breathes. A male and female of each kind entered just as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord closed the door behind them. And I love that part. The Lord closed the door behind him, behind them. Think about that. He closed the door to one period of life and he will then open it again when life changes again. He did it himself. Noah was given instruction. He was given instruction but he was not sure how God was going to pull it off, right? He's like, I want you to bring animals to the ark. I want you to fill it with animals. And he's like, I'm not sure how to do that. In fact, he gave Noah instructions. And out of all the instructions he gave him, he didn't give him anything when it comes to navigation. Build a boat. But how he has no idea where he is supposed to go. He has no idea where he's going. He doesn't even know how he's going to get the boat to water because water is about 100 miles away He's not sure how this is going to work. And friends, God may not give you all the details. In fact, he probably won't. He's not going to give you everything in the instructions, but trust him until he shows you how he's going to pull it off because he's going to pull it off. 
That's what he does. He is God. And all of a sudden, it became crystal clear that one man was right and an entire civilization missed the boat. It took a while. It took a long while. And I know that for some of you, you, you you're ready to quit. Right? You are tired of living by faith. You are tired of being locked down and trying to lift your eyes up to him. But let us take a tip from Noah. Let us trust God. Let us trust him even when we are tired. And when, even when we don't have all the information. Even when we're not like, God, where are you at in all of this? We should trust him. Look at what Noah did. I think this is amazing. There's a pattern when it comes to the way Noah lived his life. You can see it in this, you can see it throughout his, his life when you read it in God's word. And it is this, Noah would trust, he would obey, and then he would wait, and then he would repeat all that again, and do it again and again. Trust, obey, wait, repeat. Trust, obey, wait, repeat. Here's, for example, look at this. God said, I'm gonna flood the earth, and Noah trusted him in that. He said, okay, if that's what you're going to do, God. Then he obeyed. I want you to build an ark. So he built an ark. What happened next? He waited. He waited for the rains to come. And then he repeats it again. Take the animals, for example. The animals, he's like, well, how are they going to come? God said, I'm going to, you know, I want you to take the animals. So he's like, okay, I trust that I need to do that. So he obeys. What does he do? He builds multiple levels on the ark for the animals. He obeys, and then he waits. What happens? The animals come on their own. Trust, obey, wait, and repeat. Trust, obey, wait, and repeat. Eventually, the rains came. For 40 days, the floodwaters grew deeper, covering the ground and lifting the boat high above the earth. Eventually, those waters receded, and Noah sent out a raven, and then he sent out a dove three times, and on the last time, the dove didn't come back because he stayed on dry land. And so, after 370 days of being locked up, after 370 days of being closed in, in quarantine, it was over. Noah his wife and his sons and their wives left the boat and all of the large and small animals and birds came out of the boat pair by pair. Noah lost the life that he knew. The life that he had before was gone. Through tragedy, he and his family stepped out of the boat through a rainbow, under a rainbow, and to begin again. And what I want to do right now is I want to get real practical because here's what's interesting. That's where the story always stops. But if you read God's word, that is not where the story stops. There's more. And so the question remains, what did Noah do next? What was the first thing? If you were here, I would ask you as a congregation, I'd say, does anybody know how in the world or what in the world Noah did when he stepped out of the ark? Does anybody know? Did, did he kiss the ground? Did he dance a jig? What did he do when he decided to begin again? Here's what he did. He built an altar. First, he built an ark. Then he built an altar. Verse 20. 
Then, that means immediately after, that's immediately after they got off the boat, Noah built an altar to the Lord. What is the significance of that? My, my friend and, and fellow teacher, teaching pastor here, Mike Howerton, coined this phrase a little while back when I was at Overlake, and this is what it means. It means to worship first. An altar represents worship. And the first thing that Noah did stepping off the ark was to worship. And by building an altar, Noah was acknowledging God as God, as his God. He was putting God first. More than just singing, it was saying, you are God and I trust in you. And friends, when we connect and when we worship first, we are sorry, when we worship first, we connect to God. And we acknowledge who he is and who we are and our need for him. And we go to him with our past and we say, can you take this? Can you fix this? And he says, yes. And we say, can you help me with my present? And he says, I already am. And then he says, will you take me into the future with you? And he says, I've done that too. That is what it means to surrender, to say, God, you are my God. I will ever praise you. I give you my past, my present, and my future. And like Noah, we can choose to trust through pain, through tears, through loss, through tragedy, through joy, through work, through play, all of those things, through quarantine, we can choose to trust and say, God, you are my God. I worship you first in all of these circumstances. And we can begin again. And we start by putting God in the place where he needs to be and in the place of worship. And we worship him first. So then the question remains, what was the second thing that Noah did when he got off the ark? First, he built an altar. What was the second thing? Here's what he did. He planted a vineyard. Noah planted a vineyard. It says this, after the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground and he planted a vineyard. You may not know this, but Noah's dad was a farmer. And even Noah is known as a man of the soil. You would think that he would be known as a man of the big boat, but his name means man of the soil because he brought relief to his father who was a farmer. That was the life he had before. And so when he steps into this new life to begin again, he does what he knows how to do. And here's where it goes practical for us. He does the next thing. Do the next right thing. Worship first and then do the next thing that you can do. The next right thing personally. Here's what it means practically. When you're at the end of your hope, you're at the end of your rope and life as you know it has come to an end. You've lost a spouse. You've lost a job. You've lost someone that you love. Simply do the next thing that you can do. The next right thing. And that could be changing a baby, right? You're just Or rocking a baby to sleep. That could be doing the dishes, just jumping in the kitchen. You know, you can't even breathe, but you can do the dishes. It could be eating something. It could be drinking. I'd, I'd suggest water or, or a Pepsi or something like that, but, but drinking, you, you can pray, you can, you can go get milk from the store, you can answer a text from a friend, you go on a walk, you, you could let yourself cry. You can go mow the yard. 
Just do the next thing. When the life that you had falls apart around you, the thing to do is not to panic. It's to first worship God. Put him in the place. I trust you. And then do the next thing that you can do. When Magnolia got sick and she got diagnosed, I remember my wife and I crying ourselves to sleep on that night. And as we were crying ourselves to sleep, we wake up the next morning. I remember waking up thinking it's just a normal day. It's just a normal day. But then all of a sudden I remembered and my stomach dropped. And my, my daughter has a death sentence over her head. It's, it's, it's happening. There's nothing we can do to stop it. And so what do we do? Because I can tell you this, I surely did not want to get out of bed. That was the last thing I wanted to do. I didn't even know if I could breathe. My eyes were so red from crying the whole entire time. So what did we do? We got out of our room and we went and we met Magnolia and Paisley and we sat on the landing upstairs. And we had toys that were up there. So we grabbed the toys and we grabbed the, the cars and the people and we just started to play. And we did the next thing that we could do, trying to take in that sacred moment, that moment, every moment was sacred with her. And I remember crying in the process, and I remember Mag Maggie asking me, Dad, why are you crying? And I just said, because I love you so much. On the day of her death, I remember that she passed away, and I wasn't sure how to handle that. Obviously, what do you do in those moments? When tragedy hits and your world falls apart and there's feels like there's no hope and you, you can't even breathe and it hurts and... What do you do? We took a blanket. We went out into the backyard. We laid out the blanket. And we just laid in there in the sun as a family. That's about all we could do. We barely talked. But it was the rest of us. We were out there and that's what we did. We did the next thing that we could do, the next right thing, which was to be together. I don't know what your thing is. I don't know what's going on in your world. But if you ever get to that place where you're frozen and, and it's so painful that you just can't take it anymore. One, trust God. And secondly, take the next step that you can take. And if you can't take it, have somebody help you to, and take it with you. Have them come alongside you. Noah, he did the next thing that he knew to do. He built a, 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 a vineyard. He put it together. And so wherever you are today, Whatever you're going through, and I know we're all going through a lot because I hear about it a lot. We're all in pain. People are hurting and people hurt people hurt people and it's just, it's, everyone's hurting right now. In the midst of it, please, let's not forget this. That, that, that there will be light at the end of this tunnel. But when you can't see that, when you can't see the hope on the horizon and you're at the end of your hope, remember that God is providing a path for us to begin again. And we have that opportunity. And we're going to take that opportunity. And let's walk hand in hand, arm in arm, towards him, towards Jesus, acknowledging that he is here and we trust him and how he cares for us. Just take the next step. Worship him and do the next right thing. Let's pray.